This call is being recorded. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody... Man to man is so unjust. Children, you don't know who to trust. Your worst enemy could be your best friend. And your best friend, your worst enemy. Some will eat and drink with you. Then behind them, sus upon you. Only your friends know your secrets. So only eat could reveal it. And who the captain?
Some will eat and drink with Some you. Will eat and drink with you. Then behind them, sister, for you, yeah. And if night you turn to dinner, a lot of people. three people is doing something risky? Is it the one who takes their cholesterol medication with grapefruit juice? The one who takes acetaminophen pain relievers for a sore ankle before going out for drinks? Or the one who's on a blood thinning medication and takes an aspirin for a headache? Actually, all of them are. Each has inadvertently created a drug interaction that could, in extreme cases, lead to kidney failure, liver damage, or internal bleeding. Drug interactions happen when a combination of a drug with another substance causes different effects than either would individually. Foods, herbal supplements, legal drugs, and illicit substances can all cause drug interactions. Most drug interactions fall into two categories. Some take place when two substances' effects influence each other directly. In other cases, one substance affects how the body processes another, like how it is absorbed, metabolized, or transported around the body. Blood thinners and aspirin, for example, have similar effects that become dangerous when combined. Both prevent blood clots from forming. Blood thinners, by preventing the formation of the clotting factors that hold clots together, and aspirin by preventing blood cells from clumping into groups that become clots. Individually, these effects are usually safe, but taken together, they can prevent blood clotting to a dangerous extent, possibly causing internal bleeding. While blood thinners and aspirin are generally harmless when taken individually, interactions where one substance exacerbates the effects of another can also take place between drugs that are independently harmful. Cocaine and heroin are each dangerous, and those dangers compound when the two drugs are combined, even though their behavioral effects may feel like they cancel each other out. Cocaine is a stimulant, and many of its effects, like increased heart rate, cause the body to need more oxygen. But heroin, a depressant, slows breathing, reducing the body's oxygen supply just when it needs more. This combination strains the organs and can cause respiratory failure and death. The interaction between grapefruit juice and certain medications in a class of cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins has to do with drug metabolism. The liver produces enzymes, molecules that facilitate the breakdown of substances that enter the body. Enzymes can both activate drugs by breaking them down into their therapeutic ingredients from more complex molecules 
and deactivate them by breaking harmful compounds down into harmless metabolites. There are many, many different enzymes, each of which has a binding site that fits a specific molecule. Grapefruit binds to the same enzyme as statins, making less of that enzyme available to break down statins. So combining the two means that a greater concentration of the drug stays in the bloodstream for a longer period of time, potentially causing kidney failure. Alcohol can also alter the function of the enzyme that breaks down acetaminophen, the active ingredient in pain relievers like Tylenol and paracetamol. When someone takes acetaminophen, some of it is converted into a toxic substance. At the recommended dose, there isn't usually enough of this toxic byproduct to cause harm, but heavy drinking can alter enzyme activity so more of that byproduct is produced, potentially causing liver damage even with what's usually a safe dose of acetaminophen. Meanwhile, the herbal remedy St. John's wort increases the liver's production of a particular enzyme. That means the drugs this enzyme is responsible for breaking down get metabolized faster, sometimes too fast, before they can have their therapeutic effects. In spite of the dizzying number of possible interactions, most of the dangerous interactions with commonly used drugs are well known. And new developments in science are helping us keep better track of drug interactions than ever. Some researchers are developing AI programs that can predict the side effects of drug interactions before they occur, using information about the landscape of protein interactions within your body. For the new drugs that are being developed all the time, supercomputers are being used to find potential interactions while those drugs are still in development. When you take medicine, how does it know where it needs to go? Find out by following the path of medicine as it travels through the body in this video. You're watching Deep Look's 100th episode. Think we should do 100 more? Then support us on Patreon. Link is in the description. These ants are planning a heist. They don't have a choice. They can't feed themselves on their own. But they're not plotting to steal food. They steal other ants. They're kidnappers. As the sun sets in California Sierra Nevada mountains, scouts leave their underground nest. They're looking for ants of an entirely different species. This nearby colony of black ants knows what's out there. So every afternoon, they block the entrance to their own nest to protect themselves. But it's too late. A scout spots them. She rushes back to mobilize her sisters. They charge out across the forest floor. It's a raid. The black ants try to defend themselves from the onslaught, but it's not enough. They're overwhelmed, panicked. The raiders start digging. 
Once they're in, they know exactly what they're after. The most prized possession ants have. They're young. Those white things are pupae, the developing juveniles. The kidnappers use their pointy, oversized mandibles to snatch them up and haul the young back to their nest. Now, you'd think when the young ants grow up, they'd realize they're surrounded by strangers in the nest of a totally different species. But ants don't really recognize each other by sight. They use smell. So the kidnappers coat the young ants in secretions from glands near their mouths, imprinting their colony scent onto the new arrivals. As they grow up, the young black ants think they're at home with their own family. They have no idea. So the newly enslaved ants just get to work. Leaving the nest to forage for food for their captors. The captive ants' mandibles are serrated for grinding up food. The kidnappers' jaws are really only good for one thing, grabbing young ants. They can't even chew their own food. So the kidnappers get their captives to regurgitate food right into their mouths, kind of like a pre-made smoothie. It's called trophallaxis. The captive ants do pretty much all the work in the colony, like keeping up the nest and looking after the young. So the kidnappers can spend their days just lounging around in a big pile. Until it's time to storm the forest floor again, looking for more unsuspecting ants to join their ranks. Hey, it's Lauren. How about a few more untrustworthy invertebrates? Like a sea slug that steals poison from its prey, or rainforest ants that break their promises for a little sweet payoff. And check out Above the Noise, a show that explores the research behind controversial topics in the news, like the ethics of keeping animals in zoos. See you next time. My goodness. So many of you guys asked me to check out Flame Monroe's interview on The Breakfast Club. And for those of you who don't know who Flame Monroe is, I'm, I'm gonna try my best to tell you who this individual is. Flame Monroe is a comedian, a father, a son, a ma'am, and who is attracted to masculine women who identify as dudes. Okay. Bruh, I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't even know what to say to that. This dude, that's, I mean, that's what he says. So I'm not, I'm not misgendering or anything. That's what he, that's what he says he is. This dude said his pronouns were he, she, we. He said that he cashes a check, she makes it, and we spend it. <laughs>
I'm not even gonna lie. I'm not even gonna lie. That's kind of funny. He goes on to say that, yo, he's only part of the alphabet community like four hours a day. <laughs> he, 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 he's, he's like this because if you know, in order to make money, I'm just like, yo, this is crazy. This, this is, this is crazy. I'm a black man. I'm a trans woman. I'm part of the LGBT community. Only four hours a day, though. Make sure y'all put that on record. But anyways, getting into the interview, I mean, he, it, the dude speaks truth. I, he does speak truth. He talks about how kids nowadays, they too soft, right? Everybody wants to be a keyboard warrior. Um, but when it comes to, you know, throwing, getting these hands, getting this work, uh, everybody just, you know, pulls out and squeezes. Now it's, it, these young kids, all they want to do is shoot and yeah. kill. I, I th this is what we need, and the youth need to have a good old fashioned fist fight. You whoop my ass, so I'll whoop your ass. Sometimes the person that you fight becomes your lifelong friend. But the highlight of this video, the highlight of this interview, has to be when he calls out Malik Yoba. Because, bruh, he, my dude said the same thing that I did. Like, bruh, this, all this trans attractive nonsense, like, miss me with that. Like, miss me with that nonsense. Come on now. He says that, yo, I, I get that they want to say that and everything. But listen, women don't have basketballs and they don't have wee-wees. They just don't, all right? Yeah. I thought that interview was the most confusing that I've ever seen in my whole life. <sighs> and I'm that? part of the LGBT, ABCDFG, PTSD community. <laughs> Malik, all that he was talking, loves a woman, a beautiful woman with a penis. I'm a whole ass man up under this wig. Ain't no women with penises. That in addition to that, that the reality of the situation is that I'm not a woman. I'm a woman impersonator. Also that how many of these individuals learn to be women or learn to act like women is that they learn it not from other men. They learn it from actual women. So you should need to give that same respect back to the women that you're appropriating. I didn't learn how to be a girl from watching a, a boy. I learned how to be a girl from watching a woman. My mother, my aunties, my grandmother. That's real. That's how we learned how to be girls. So first of all, let's give the respect back to the women. We are female impersonators. Dudes like Malik Yoba, that they, they like, they, they like uh, that, that appearance. And it's only, it's only a cover. It's only a cover. It's like mental gymnastics they play in their head, where it's like, well, this is a woman. This is a woman. But they know this, the only reason you want it is because it has something that some of the other women don't have. In their mentality, they feel like I'm not with a man because you got all the feminine parts, but you still got that tool that I need. That's just real love. Man, it was just, it was so refreshing hearing this. <laughs> it was... It was so refreshing hearing this. I was like, yo, Charlie Kirk, why don't you have him on stage? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But he goes on to say that, you know, the message, you know, went from tolerance to acceptance, you know, right? And, and I 100% agree. Because first it was like, well, just tolerate me, just tolerate. It's like, okay, because tolerance doesn't mean I accept what you do. That just means I tolerate the behavior. I tolerate the nonsense, the foolishness that I'm seeing. So like, okay, but now, it's, it's now gotten to, well, now you need to accept what I'm doing and approve of it and applaud my behavior, even whether you agree with it or not, because if you don't, well, then you're going to be labeled some type of phobic. My community, we are forcing, take us, see us, accept us, let us be with you. I don't, you don't need to get down with my lifestyle. That don't mean I can't be your neighbor. Then he gets into talking about sports and whatnot and the foolishness that is going on there. And he says what any functional human being with the brain would say. Say, hey, it's not fair. It's that simple. It's not fair. If you want to have a little thing for, you know, 0.4% of the population, then create a new lane for them. Create a lane where they can compete among each other. 
It's as simple as that. If we want inclusion, then create a lane for Olympics. But stop putting these men against these women. It's just not right. right. It's not right. But all in all, this interview was, <laughs> it, it was interesting. It was definitely interesting, to say the least. Because I'm like, I don't, what is going on here? <laughs> what, what, what is going on here? But, but regardless, one thing I always say is that, you know what? Whether or not you agree with someone and their lifestyle and behavior, you, you have to treat them with respect, right? You don't treat them as they're a lesser human being. And that's something that I agree with. The problem comes into play is that, you know what? They feel that if you don't agree with their lifestyle, their behavior, they take that as you treating them with disrespect. You're dehumanizing me and all that. And that's where that's man, that's where you have to put your foot down. That's where you have to put your foot down. Because under that comes a lot of foolishness that we're already seeing. We're already seeing within within the right as well. We're already seeing a bunch of bunch of nonsense just sneaking in, sneaking in the back door. No pun intended. <laughs> Anyways, guys, that's the video. Let me know what you guys think. We're not Elite Lucas Lucas. Monroe is not really part of the alphabet community. Not really. It's a fraud. They're a fraud. Or if you believe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Based off of uh, what's going on, I say that looks exactly like the alphabet community. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just glad someone actually has some common sense. Uh, either or. Hope you guys enjoyed the video. If you did, please feel free to like, share, comment, subscribe. Oh, that fun stuff. Till next time, guys. Be amazing. Miss me with that. A raven lived in the forest and was absolutely satisfied with his life. But one day, it happened that he saw a beautiful swan. This swan is so white, he thought, and I am so black. This swan must be the happiest bird in the world. So he flew over to the swan and expressed his thoughts. Actually, the swan replied, I was feeling that I was the happiest bird around until I saw a parrot, which has two colors. Now I think the parrot is the happiest bird in creation. So the raven flew over to the parrot. The parrot explained, I lived a perfectly happy life until I saw a peacock. I have only two colors, but the peacock has dozens of colors. So the raven flew around looking for a peacock, but he couldn't find one. And one day by chance, while flying over a zoo, he saw a peacock in his cage. So he flew over immediately and saw that hundreds of people had gathered to see him. After the people had left, the raven approached the peacock. Dear peacock, the raven said, you are so beautiful. Every day, thousands of people come to see you. When people see me, they immediately shoo me away. I think you must be the happiest bird on the planet. The peacock replied, I always thought that I was the most beautiful and happiest bird on the planet. But because of my beauty, I am entrapped in this zoo. I have examined the zoo very carefully, and I have realized that you, the raven, are the only bird not kept in a cage. So for the past few days, I have been thinking that if I were a raven, I could happily roam everywhere and I would be free. You see, in life, that's our problem too. We make unnecessary comparisons with others and become sad, therefore. We don't value what God has given us. And this all leads to a vicious cycle of unhappiness. Instead, you should learn to be happy in what you have, instead of looking at what you don't have. There will always be someone 
who will have more or less than you have. A person who is satisfied with what he or she has or is, is the happiest person in the world. And remember, it doesn't matter if you have all the beauty in this world, but if this beauty keeps you entrapped, it won't make you happy. This is Dare to Do Motivation Stories. Thanks for watching, and stay blessed. Well, any effort that will help black people to think about what they are doing and why they are doing it, and that's black people, not just the youngsters and all like that. That's black people in general throughout the entire world. We don't have an agenda. We don't have a reason for existing that makes sense. We don't have a culture that makes sense. Because if you just look at the essence of black culture, you can't even enumerate what it is. Except a reaction to the culture of white supremacy. If the white supremacists are not holding us by the ear and say, okay, come here, come here, fella, come here, okay, uh -huh. come with me, uh -huh. do this, do that, okay, when you finish doing this, I got another project for you. Now, we make sense when they are orchestrating what we are doing. You know, come over here and operate this machine. Okay, enough of that. Come down here and drive this vehicle. Okay, all right, enough of that. Come over here and build this bridge. Okay, enough of that. All right, now I'm allow you a little free time. See, once we get that free time, because, you know, the slave mentality is, hey, I'm not supposed to have free time. Somebody's supposed to be telling me what to do. So when I don't know, somebody's not telling me what to do every minute of my entire existence, I got no idea about what to do. I don't even know what I'm existing for. So then we fall into what we call the black culture stereotype, which is violence against other black people. And when I say violence, I mean verbal violence. Listen to black people walking down the street on their cell phones. If you don't believe it, if you think I'm making it up, listen to black people walking down the street on their cell phones. MF this and MF that. And I told that MF, and, you know, and, and I told and then that's both males and females. The females saying, Keisha came over to my house and she come up with all that S and started talking about this and whatnot. And, you know, and she talked, came over there telling me about Vanessa and Vanessa is my sister. And I don't allow nobody to say nothing about my This is, you know, from the back of the bus, cell phone talk, all hostile, all hostile, nothing pleasant. Not one word of civility out of all of it, wherever you find black people. Nothing being said that makes any sense at all. Nothing that is constructive in any way. And so we have to have a constructive culture. So the first step toward remedying that, black people shouldn't come in contact with each other at all under any circumstance unless they have a constructive agenda. That's the key. Bitch nigga, walk with a switch nigga. Why you switch nigga? Talk high pitch nigga. You know how we get niggas. Yes, it's to be expected. This is to be expected. But we should understand, first of all, that we are programmed this way. Black people are toxic. All of us are toxic. We are loaded with poison because the system of white supremacy puts that poison in us even before we are born.
And when we are born, we are born into the system of white supremacy. We're not born into a system of uh, la-la land. We are born into the system of white supremacy. The system of white supremacy is designed for everyone, including black people themselves, to have a hostile position, a hostile thought toward anything dark, and particularly dark people. That's just the way the world is run. That's the way the white supremacists have set it up before any of us were born. So we have to, first of all, know that. So we all carry that poison. It's in us. We're not aware of it uh, in one sense, you might say. And then in another sense, we are aware of it, but we're in denial. But we have to admit, first of all, we have this poison. And then we immediately should jump to what do we do about it? Well, the first thing you do, you don't want poison to spread. That's just a part of physics, the laws of mathematics. If you've got poison on hand, you don't want the poison to spread. How do you keep the poison from spreading? You make sure that every contact that every black person makes with every other black person has a plan beforehand to do something constructive. Do or say something constructive. Don't get on the cell phone and call anyone just to make conversation. That's an old part of the, the what you might call black culture or, or people culture, for that matter. With some people, it works. With most people, particularly black people in the Northwestern Hemisphere, it's poisonous. It is deadly. You don't pick up that cell phone and call anyone ever just to chat. Hey, girl, I haven't heard from you in a little while. What's going on? No, absolutely. That, that is poison. Poisonous. In other words, our minds are poison. The things that we are getting ready to say to people is loaded with poison. The way that we look at people, the way that we see the world, loaded with poison. The poison was planted in us. So we, every time we make contact with anything, we just spread poison because we're loaded with poison. And if we are contacting other black people, they are loaded with poison and dynamite. And you're going to get an explosion unless you tailor and suppress that poison and tailor it in such a way that it's kind of shunted off to the side or it doesn't manifest itself. I mean, when we make these contacts. So I have it in the book, the textbook for victims of white supremacy. No contact, no conflict. If you minimize the contact, you minimize the conflict. Black people themselves know, if you just stop and think about it for a few minutes, you ever notice how well you get along with somebody you haven't seen in 15 years? And they snatch your ass up and you do 10 to 15. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy. We got to stop thinking that these white people or this government owes us something. They don't owe us something. Man, that is so true because. So what do we do, TK? You 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 play the you got. It's called strategy. It's called telesis. Let's use that word, telesis. Mm-hmm. It means progress intelligently planned. And you got to understand, like Nipsey said, it's a marathon. Let me explain to what I mean. Okay, they got like it's like a race. The white generation got us the first three hundred years, right? But we take care of our family. We teach them knowledge. We give them the game. They pass the baton to their children. So guess what? The next 300 years, we can go strive for strive with them. It's a race. 
You know what I'm saying? The earth, the, the, the world is billions of years old. We got to stop thinking that this is just a today or tomorrow. No one thinks about down the line. It's, it's basically, and this is my theory. Yes, sir. Playing the game. You got to understand the game with the police. Yes, sir. They have the pen. If you go against the pen, you're not going to win. Not one time because they write what they want. Write what they want. When you start understanding they're gonna write what they want, you're gonna shut the fuck up. They can't write you didn't say. And if your money's not right, you 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 ain't no done. good. Yeah, it's a wrap. You ain't no good. So you gotta play this game. You got if you don't strategy. play the game and you're trying to go against it, the only way out you go against that, you out there robbing up. Yeah, you out there doing something wrong to go to jail. Yes. And and that's where they want us. Man, you gotta look and I and and Every everything in the neighborhood is a liquor store. Yes, sir. Is 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 some to keep us drunk. Yep. It's some to keep us fighting each other. Yeah. Alcohol gonna us up every time. Every time. Stop going to the motherfucking liquor stores. Burn the motherfuckers down. And you see what else they putting in the black communities? What the plasma plaza company? Oh they yeah, get they, your blood. And, and that's mo- mo- going to that like they crazy. Going to it they, because they selling blood. Shh. You selling, they selling blood, man. TK, if you don't see, if 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 you see them go to them blood banks, I see it. And you see the motherfuckers that getting it, they all you see people getting skinnier and skinnier. I think CVS has a thing where they, they take getting, your blood. They getting it's sad. They going there for dollars and they only doing it in black communities. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah. So that's what I mean when you say what do we do? Oh, what do we do in the NFL example though? The NFL is get your money, take care of your family, and keep it mother moving because here's the reality in 10 15 years nobody's gonna give a f- okay somebody will say to you oh i like what you did for the people 10 15 years yeah they'll tell you you've been going three and yeah they will pat you, they'll they'll you on the back. and we have examples of how people don't give a f- yeah let me explain to you what i mean you got malcolm x as an example you got martin luther king an example that people don't give people really give a f- they won't be doing the things that they're doing today in in, in this world. Exactly. You got from Martin Luther King down to Nipsey of our own kind destroying each other, right? The goal, you could only go to war if your paper's right. Your paper is get the money, put your kids to good schools, give them the game. They pass it to the next generation. And you try to keep your kids safe. You can't go to toe to toe with the machine. Well, you it, you know it's it's hard to keep your your kids safe now because they got this law where you can't whoop your kid ass. You <laughs> cannot so discipline your kid. It's, it's all a sudden. So once I agree. they took that from 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 us. <laughs> yep. And and you know my brother prime example. They trying to give him was trying to give him <laughs> excuse me twenty seven years for disciplining a kid that was ready to. Fight him. If you can't discipline him and you know you're going to jail, yes, that leaves your kid in the street. Absolutely right. So now he's at a point where either I, either I'm gonna continue to chastise his ass and what they talking about, or I'm just gonna let him go. Yes, Nine times and that's what they 10, want. You gonna let him go because you can't go to prison. I'm not going to prison for yeah. my child. No, you can't do that. So now, what do you do? If you can't chastise your kid, I totally agree, my man. They got to bring you. Got to be able to chastise ass whoopings when they went out style. That's why this generation <sighs> is acting the way I'm telling you. We need you know how we turned out. Yeah, got 
respect is everything. You can, I was at the airport in Vegas, yo. The young man was late for his flight. He cursed that woman out so bad because he said, the plane's right there. Bitch. And I, as a man, <laughs> I wanted to go to him and pull him to the side and say, they getting ready to arrest you, young man. <laughs> yeah. Like you yeah. can't be cursing like this in in the in, in in the airport. Especially getting on the plane. Yeah, you going they locking your ass. Yeah. But I sat there because I felt like he had to go through his life lesson. Because he was so he was totally out of control. And for my fans on Instagram, you guys fans, all we're doing, ladies and gentlemen, is explaining to you. We want to just give you the information. It's up yeah. to you how you process it. All we can do is bring it to you. But we want you to win at this thing called life. Thanks for watching this video clip of the Gangster Chronicles podcast. The entire episode, make sure you go to radio.com, Apple iTunes, or Spotify. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Real Life Radio Show. I am your host, Jenna Kepra, alongside my partner, Brother Ross. Today is Tuesday, November the 26th. Hopefully, uh, regardless if you celebrate, you have a great time off of work and enjoy your family. And hopefully the things we're going to discuss tonight will get you prepared for some of the, those toxic family members that you shall encounter. What's going on, Brother Rise? Peace. I'm still learning. Um, it's been an hmm, interesting week. You and I have been having some really uh, insightful and kind of deep conversations on a myriad of topics. So um, I think this particular topic is appropriate, especially now that we're going into the holidays. I know just from working in the healthcare field, the highest amount of suicides are committed during this time, this Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's time, is when a lot of people choose to check out for good. And a lot of it has to do with their family situations, them feeling isolated, them feeling like nobody cares about them. Um, especially for people who think differently from the rest of their family. You kind of like the, the, the outcast in the family and everybody always, oh, that person's crazy. Or, you know, you know, we don't like them white folks and, or whatever the case may be, whatever your situation is that has you as that outcast person. Um, not everybody can really deal with that because we, you know, human beings are social creatures. That's what we are. We, we, um, we expressed ourselves to the highest um, point possible in very, very ancient times by our ability to come together in a, a synergistic, uh, communal-centric societal model. Um, and that's when man's greatest achievements were, were pretty much um, taking place. All over the African continent, different places, people came together and did incredible things. Um, and of course, they took those things with them, and eventually their descendants did the same things where they ended up in whatever part of the world they ended up. So the idea is that um, going into this time of the year, I think just for those people who might be struggling with family relationships, um, with situations, because I mean, seriously, we all know the people who have the highest potential to really, really damage you in a psycho psychological or emotional or um, familiar way are the people that are closest to you because they know you. That's, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. They know you better than anyone else. So as a result, they know how to get to you and how to get at you in a way that someone who doesn't know you wouldn't know. Um, so we just have to learn how to navigate those things and try to, uh, like Neely Fuller said, minimize contact and minimize conflict. That is something 
that I utilized throughout my whole life. <laughs> my troubles at home started very, very young. So we'll move on from there for now. We'll get to all of that stuff later on. But um, I just wanted to kind of introduce the program with that. Still learning, and we're going to chop up a lot of interesting uh, information, hopefully, just about how to navigate family time in a way that's constructive, especially for people who may have situations where things are really um, sensitive for them in regards to whatever family situation they're dealing with. So I think that's it. I, mean, I don't know if I said too much. <laughs> nah, no worries. It ain't never enough. Uh, I know we wanted to get into some of this uh, silver before we start going over those clips. And I actually think I forgot one. Uh, matter of fact, in those jeans, right? Yeah. Hey, Amen. I'm going to do that before we get started. Okay. So, yeah, we have had some interesting conversations and, you know, hopefully it'll help somebody. So let me get this started. Here we go. Why why should we care? So let's start with the genome, right? And yeah, what is the DNA? So we have this thing called DNA. It has four letters, A, C, T, and G. And I kind of think about this as like a recipe book. So you have a recipe book that really much, like pretty much is telling the body how to function. And your genes, the letters of A, C, T, and G, come together in a certain sequence of those would be considered gene, let's say, you know, A, B, C, D, right? Um, or let's say um, Black Girl Magic. So BGM, the BGM gene, right? And it has a sequence of A, T, Cs, and Gs. And that is what makes up the gene, the gene. Now, we have 25,000 genes in our entire genome, around 25,000 genes. And so you hear people say like, oh, well, I don't have the gene for that. Or you have the gene for that. Or we have the gene for that in our family. And it's really interesting how we use that language because in, in actuality, all humans have the 99.9% of the same genome, right? So we all have the same genes. Now, what the difference is, is that within that sequence, so going back to the Black Girl Magic gene, within that sequence of the gene, you might have one of those letters that's different between me and you. And so there might be 0.1% that explain the differences. So we're more, like Maya Angela would say, we're more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. So we are very similar. All people, not all just people. black people. Not, not just, just, yeah. All people, 99.9% of us. Yes. More alike. Yeah. We so are, all the differences in us just come from that 0.1%. That 0.1%. That's crazy. Just and we're nuts. fighting over that. It, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Silly. And it's worth a lot of money. We're furious wait, over Oh, that. wait, back up. She said it's worth a lot of it's money. It's worth a lot how, of money. How so, Janina? Okay, so, you know, one of the things I like to educate the community on is that African genomes are the most varied genomes of any human population. And that's a beautiful thing, Why right? Is that? Because we're the first modern day humans. Mm. So modern humans evolved out of Africa. And the first modern day human, we call her mama, mama mitochondria, right? And we can trace like that. Yeah. We can mama trace mitochondria. It wasn't white Jesus that birthed? No. <laughs> no? Did I miss that? Jesus couldn't birth because couldn't. Jesus didn't have a, uh, He didn't X, have X. ovaries. No Got ovaries. It. How can you birth? <laughs> Got it. Got it. Mama mitochondria. Mama mitochondria. So if you think about it, our genomes, the oldest genomes, have really learned how to survive. We figured out this human survival thing. So we have, in terms of those little letters and those genes, we have more of those letters than any other human population. Now, why is that worth a lot of money? Well, if you want to create a drug target, if you want to understand how 
you know, people respond to drugs. You want to understand why people develop certain diseases, why you might look one way or another way. It all lies within those changes. So we have the most changes, which means there's a huge, you know, urgency from a lot of companies to get access to African genomes because we have like the answers, essentially. So when we talk about access to our genomes, I, I think of Tuskegee. I think of the radiation experiment. I think of the sterilizations. I, th I think of all of the horrific ways in which even even during enslavement, the the, the gynecologists that would um, experiment on women without anesthesia. I think of all of the things we don't know because it was never chronicled, right? That was done on plantations in secret, right? Um, and what what's the manifestation of this today? And how do how do we how do we control our our DNA? How do we control this, the narrative around our DNA? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So, I mean, the first thing we need to do is understand what the power is, right? Because I think if you understand the power, you might say, hmm, do I, you know, submit my DNA for a genetic ancestry test with the risk that that DNA can be sold to another company with the risk that I might not get any type of benefit from it, that I might not be compensated from it. So uh, 20 that's what happened to Henrietta Lacks. Oh, yeah. Well, so Henrietta Lacks, you know, her her cervical cancer cells were taken from her and used without her consent. Right. And so to this day. Henrietta Lacks, we call these, uh, the cells that are named after her are called HeLa cells. And I talk about this double consciousness that I have where on, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois coined this double consciousness as a psychosocial divide um, to explain two opposing Black experiences. And I, I experience it. I call her geneticist. You know, I... I, I so Janina and geneticist. Yes. I experienced this because from the science side, like when I was at Spelman, I heard of HeLa cells. We all knew about HeLa cells. And then once I like started to, you know, once I was, I think my freshman, uh, towards the end of Spelman, I heard about Henrietta Lacks and I'm like, well, how did I not know that he loves stand from Henrietta Lacks's, the two first two letters of her first and last name? How did I not know that? And I felt kind of, you know, I was sickened really, because now I don't know how to engage with genetics, right? Because I am a black woman. So I am, you know, a representation, a manifestation of Henrietta Lacks. At the same time, I'm a scientist and understand the value of the genome. So to get to your question, you know, how do we prevent the another Henrietta Lacks from happening? We have to understand everything that could happen with our genomes. Yeah. That was one you asked for specifically. I I, I can't wait. <laughs> Man, um, I think when you you talking about specifically this particular video? Yes. Yeah. Um. I just I just thought it was uh quite important in the sense of just giving a, a, a better understanding of who and what we are. And when she was able to break down as a geneticist, the fact that African people have the most diverse genome. So that is how you can tell just on a genetic level that African people are the mm -hmm. origin of all people. And the same thing goes for even with, um, with animals. When you go back to the area where the first cats, that were domesticated came from, you find that they have the most the most genetic diversity of cats anywhere else in the world. Same thing with dogs or any other animal, you'll find that that origin species is going to have the greatest genetic diversity. And 
whatever animals descend from that origin species are going to have less because they're an extension of that, not the original thing. Um, and in that originality, you have all these dis- different vari- variant traits. So when she talks about the mama mitochondria, you know, it's only the black woman that carries the genetic variation for every other ethnic group on the planet, um, no matter who they may be. So that's why I kind of laugh sometimes. I hear, you know, some black men will say things like, um, oh, I want to get a girl that's exotic. And they think that exotic means from one of the islands or, you know, some place in the Far East. And the most exotic person you could find is a black person. (laughs) Those other groups, they're there, but you're falling into a a white supremacist uh, ideology of what exotic is. And it's all based on visuals not on actual facts and a lot of black folks don't really get that sort of stuff so i thought it was just interesting that we would be that we should be able to go into that on a on a deeper level and um was was there something you wanted to speak to specifically about that or did you have something that you wanted to comment on no i was i have no nothing for genes you know i can't explain them or anything so that's something that was interesting for me to hear i mean you know i done i done glossed over it but nothing the way i could give no nah, well, genes, I ain't had genes is just ran, not random but different combinations of the four letters that she talked about which are different um just specific proteins atcg and they'll have them in different arrangements and pretty much your genes are, I would call it the recipe book for who you are. Well, so everything... I, I understand that. What I'm saying uh-huh. is I have nothing for the video. But since you brought something up, it's, how would that look as far as like uh, she was saying we have the most letters? Is that in like the uh, each like she said, she started off with four. So what would that mean? We have the most letters of anyone on the planet. Meaning for all the different ways those letters can be arranged, we have the most genetic variants of all of those, which is why you can find the traits of every so-called race on the planet on the continent. So like when you look at, you go to the San people of South Africa or um, there's, there's a few groups in, in West Africa as well. Like one would be the Gorman's tribe from Burkina Faso. And you'll find uh, what Dr. Wilson would call crystal black people, as black as you can get in, in, in this part of Burkina Faso. And they have the epicastic fold that you find in the Far East amongst Chinese people and um, other people from Asia. But the, these people are unmixed African people in the middle of Burkina Faso, but they still have that trait. Or you go to the Sun people of South Africa, which they are lighter-skinned Africans, or tend to be a lot of them, because they're in a more temperate region. They're not in, near the equator. So that's why they didn't need the, the um, crystal black skin being that far south. They needed more access to vitamin D, so they were lighter. And then on top of that, they also have the epicathic fold, but they live in a desert environment, and the epicathic fold protects the, helps to protect the eyes from sandstorms. Um, so there's a genetic reason for it to exist. And then, of course, when those uh, San people, which uh, they found were 
the people who actually peopled the planet over 70,000 years ago, they went everywhere to every corner of the earth. And also you had the twelve with them, but they were the overwhelming majority. Um, you find that those traits were also advantageous in the Far East. So that maintained and as, um, you know, Asian people developed, that particular genetic trait maintained and survived through till today because it still served its purpose, at least up until recent history. Now that we live very different lives to the way our ancestors did, I think um, some of these traits might disappear depending on what's happening with the planet. But um, You, when you're looking at the, when you hear people who believe they're not African, then pretty much they're saying they don't believe they're human because the only humans are Africans and everybody else is a degeneration off of the human, the original African human model. So we came in every variation that could come in and we pretty, pretty much gave birth to everybody else. And um, even now, remember that clip we did with, with uh, Dr. Edward Robinson? He, he had passed away a few years ago. He was in his 90s, and we had, we d- dealt with a clip from him yes. where he read from that um, that 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 doc that document on genetics, where they were talking about the intelligence. They did uh, pretty much genetic testing on the intelligence of um, both animals and humans, and they found that every other group that was non-African only had nine combinations of genetic sets in reference to intelligence. And everybody of African descent had 14. So on a scientific level, we are actually the smartest humans on the planet. And there was actually an article I posted uh, maybe about a week ago, um, if not a little longer, on Black Junction mm-hmm. that dealt with the fact that um, the most intelligent people ever to ever have existed in history are three young black children and they have the highest IQs in human history since they've been taking that test. And these are children and their IQs are higher than Einstein and Newton and all the renowned so-called white scientists and all of that. They have nothing on these three black children. When you go back to Britain, the most intelligent people in Britain's history is a Nigerian family and they've broken every educational record in that country since they've been, since they created educational records. So when we are allowed to fully express our highest potential, as Dr. Wilson would put it, and like Dr. Robinson talked about, everybody who's non-African only has nine sets of these specific genes that relate to intelligence. African people have 14. So, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that in regards to the conversation on genes. And I just thought it was really important just to give, it's not about um, uh, show-offism. It's really just about giving black people context in, in terms of what is squandered, what we are squandering in a system of white supremacy. It literally retards our intelligence. We wonder why black people are killing each other over chicken. I just put up a video of Young Buck the rapper cursing out a Popeye's employee because they ran out of chicken. And he sounded like a fiend. He sounded like a fiend. We have been retarded down to the point that we act like savages over chicken. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us. Um, 
so I just wanted to toss that out there. That's that's that was what I thought was most important about the gene conversation. And I think that it's something that we we really need to think about when we look at our children and the things that we do with them, um, what we do with them in their youth. Some people have their children already knowing how to read by the time they're three because they invest that kind of time in their intelligence and making sure that they, they have as much of an advanced start as possible. But not everybody, of our, not all of our people think that way. We just wait for them to go through the normal school system. We don't teach them anything when they come home from school. You know, Jewish people, their children go to two schools. They go to regular school, public school with everybody else, and then they'll go to um, Hebrew school or Yeshiva University or I think it's Yeshiva school or something. There's a special name for the school. And that's where they learn everything it is that they need to know about being a Jew. Excuse me. Not many African people take the time to teach their children their history. That's something myself and my wife did throughout my son's life from very, very young. So when he was home, he was always getting infused with something African-centered. He always had black toys. He always had all of this, the different um, types of symbolism relating to um, African culture from the West as well as African culture from the East. Um, he heard a lot of African tales and stories and folk tales from young. All of these things were things that we did as, as a family, and it helped to shape his consciousness. When he ended up going to the white school that he went to, it was a school that's considered usually in the top three high schools in the country. And most times it's number one, but other times it'll fall somewhere within the top three. And um, it's a school that people paid last time when he was there about $43,000 a year to go to. And he got a full scholarship there. And we actually went to an Alicia Priest and just kind of wanted to figure out what we needed to do to make sure that in that environment, he didn't lose himself. <laughs> and pretty much they said what we had already been doing this whole life. Make sure you continue to educate him on who he is. And we did that. But it was something that he, was, it, he already had it in him. So it wasn't something we had to you know, reach out. He was always coming to, to us for that too. And as a result, he maintained who he was, graduated with flying colors, and now he's in graduate school. So these are all things that, you know, with, with your children, you get, you get out of them what you put into them. Your greatest investment in life is your children. In African culture, your children are your greatest asset. They're your greatest treasure. They're, your, they're everything because they perpetuate your genes. As long as your genes exist, you still exist. You know, I always talk about the uh, difference between a saw and the difference between a saw and Set. You know, Set chose to live forever, so he never died. As a result, he was impotent. He was unable to have children. A saw chose to live forever through death and resurrection through his progeny. So as long as his genetics were in the physical world, a saw was never dead. And that's the way the human beings live. That's the way all living things live. When you go to the animal kingdom, the most powerful urge that an animal has is to perpetuate its genes. There's a lot of species of animals. The last act they commit in their life is the act of sex and procreation, like the octopus. A lot of them, as soon as they mate, they die. A lot of spiders, same thing, because that's the most important thing that they are to do is to perpetuate their genetic material so that it maintains existence in the physical form. Otherwise, what? You go extinct. So you want the maximum expression 
of those genes. The system of white supremacy doesn't allow that. So we have to be, our parental um, acumen has to be heightened, but we come from a system that completely eradicated it. So as a result, a lot of our relationships with our offspring are fractured. We came from a system that made uh, procreation for the master to benefit from in the form of selling or prostituting our children. That's the context in which we had children for hundreds of years in this country. So the ability to be a father in some families is almost non-existent, but it's on a genetic level because you were used as a, your ancestor may have been used as a stud, just like a horse. All you do is you just mate with as many females as possible. Where do you think porn comes from? It came from the sale of black women on auction blocks where they would stick their fingers in their vagina and see if they squirm or make a movement, meaning that they were sensitive to that touch. Squeeze, pinch their nipples, stick their fingers in their mouth, make sure they had all their teeth, you know, have them bend over and squat and do all of that stuff. This is all public. You imagine them in Wall Street, right where you see them hit the, ring the bell at the end of the day. That's where they used to sell our ancestors just like that. Black men, same thing. You got a homosexual uh, slave master. So he's ma making sure that you got the biggest penis possible. Because the things you're going to be doing behind closed doors are going to be things that you want no one to ever know about. These are the types of things that were happening and worse <laughs> to our ancestors. So we carry the trauma of those things in our genes. And we express them in that toxicity that Neely Fuller talked about. That toxicity when we come in contact with each other and things seem like they're going good. And before you blink twice, you're arguing about some incidental nonsense. And because you might have had a few drinks, the gunplay starts or somebody stabs somebody or somebody just beats the heck out of someone. This is the type of stuff he's talking about avoiding. And I think that's very important um, for us to be able to do collectively, know how to avoid these types of things because it's not going to be um, conducive to us if we're trying to, you know, just do what we have to do and take care of our responsibilities. Those situations are not conducive to anything like that. So we have to be very conscientious about where we go and who we allow to be around us. And um, so Gene's tying to a lot of the stuff we're talking about tonight. Um, I don't know if you had any questions, Jenna, or, any, or anything you wanted to add. Let me know. Well, you know, it, it always start with good intentions, don't it? <laughs> it always start with good intentions. Oh, yeah. But just be careful. Okay, I'm sorry. Most of us know the moves of what's going to happen. Is Should we even uh, put ourselves in that predicament? Like if we already know the answer as far as this person going to start drinking around this time, shouldn't we already be gone by that time or just wait for it to happen? Because sometimes that's funny too. Well, my thing is this, because, see, my approach to life is different to a lot of people. And my approach is, I just don't go. <laughs> You're not going to see me. It's just going to be what it is with me. So there is no no person in the hierarchy of family that's important enough for me to say that I will potentially put myself in a situation that might turn into something really ugly in order just to see them. That's just not my, my thing. 
But I think if you have to do that or if that's something that you're compelled to do, because people are different. So, I mean, not everybody's going to take that kind of a hardline approach that I've taken, but I find that that hardline approach is what works for me. Now, I had enough situations in my family. You know, I've even had spiritual readings done by a traditional African priests, and they literally, when they would just talk about my family, these are people I've never met before, and they were just able to get the answers from their ancestors. And they reiterated what I know my family life to be, which is just complete, utter chaos and people fighting with each other and people hating each other and people actually even working negative spiritual attacks on other family members members and things like that. And these are things that I personally knew about, but this, you know, um, African traditional priest was able to actually say these things in in some detail, which was quite... <laughs> Quite, uh, and I'm used to that now. I mean, I've been around the culture long enough and, and um, have dealt with quite a few people and know a few people. So it's not something that's shocking. But if you've never had one of those readings done, it'll change your life because you'll learn things that or the person will tell you things about yourself that only you and you and the creator knows. You've never mentioned it to anybody else. You keep those things to yourself. It might even have some sort of, um, you know, you might get a visceral emotional response dealing with certain things because, you know, it might have uh, uh, either hurt you in a certain way or just affected you in a certain way. And those things will come out in the reading. And you'll be like, I never met this person. How the heck they know these things? But that's because your whole life is, is there. Your ancestors are you. They just in a different, different place and space. So that's why they get revered in African culture, because they're considered active members of the family. You don't just forget about them and they cease to exist just because they passed away. You know, there's certain, there's certain, um, groups of Africans where the ancestors are the final answer. If if you go through the women, you go through the elders, <laughs> you go through the judges, and you can't get an answer, they'll do a reading and get the final answer from the ancestors in some subcultures. And what the ancestors say, that's it. There's no there's no fighting it, there's no arguing with it, it's just what it is. So I mean, you know, the the whole idea is that they play an active role in the lives of their living descendants. It's just that We've lost touch with a lot of these habits in, in certain ways because we still practice certain things as well. I think in some cases we misapply some of the practices as far as just um, some of the types of people that we might revere. As far as in African tradition, we don't, we don't pay homage to people who have done terrible things or ruined the community. And I know in the Western Hemisphere, that is a thing where, you know, somebody was in the streets doing something and they died, you'll, you know, you'll pay respect to them. Um, but in traditional African culture, that those aren't people you would pay any respect to. It would have to be people who have uplifted the society or did things to change society for the better and have helped help our people in the world. Those are the people that are revered. And, and of course, your close relatives that were positive. So that's the general context in which those things would happen. So there's a lot of there's a lot of the, the genetic stuff goes hand in hand with family. And I just say. For people who have to be in those situations, I think you came up, Jenna, with a good idea. If you if you are a person who will end up, you know, in an arena where you'll be around family members that you may not want to be around, if you know they're going to start drinking, <laughs> either as soon as they get there or at a certain time they're known to start drinking, then you stay until around that time. And then once you see them mm -hmm. starting their thing, you make that your time to make your exit. So at least you got to spend time with the family that you wanted to see, but you're not staying for anything that might potentially um, end up in a negative situation for you to have to even be a part of that or end up, you know, going to jail for the night or whatever because something went down. So I would just say if that's the case, that would be the best 
scenario is you stay until, um, you, you know, it's almost just like how I do hey. when it comes Man. to work, like, like Christmas parties and stuff. If I go to a Christmas party, I must, I'm, I don't drink at any work Christmas parties. I tell them straight up, I don't drink. So don't expect me to put nothing to my lips in this frigging arena with people I work with. And then I stay for about an hour. That's all you're going to get out of me. And after that, I'm out. So that way they can't say I didn't show up. They can't say none of that, but they can, but I can say I'm staying just long as, just as long as I can tolerate y'all, which is about 60 minutes. And after that, I'm out of here and that's it. And that's the same thing I think would go with family. That way you can, they can't say you didn't show up or that you don't care. It's just that you didn't stay long enough for the normal drama that takes place down the road. And that's hey, it. And, and on the flip side, if you know you that person, <laughs> yep. that blackout and start tripping, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And think about that as well. Yeah, sometimes it, you might you might be the person in question. <laughs> that's true. I yeah. didn't think about that. That's true. Oh, shucks. That's classic. But I ain't gonna always let it slide. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, matter of fact, if, if you, I don't know if anyone who's ever seen the documentary on Left Eye, that's how her father died. They were at a family gathering. Um, he was a military guy and he used to drink too. And I believe it was one of his cousins was in the, in the in the gathering, and he was also drinking. They had gotten into an argument about something that I guess kind of carried over from a few years before, and he ended up I believe was getting stabbed by his own cousin, and that's how Left Eye lost her father at a family function. So that's a great example of why you want to minimize contact and minimize conflict, because you know some some families they do have that that penchant for violence against other family members. My family is definitely one of them. If you ever read a book, All God's Children, about the life of Willie Bosket, who was the first person in the history of the United States to be tried as an adult and placed into an adult prison in New York City. It started in New York. That was the testing ground, and then they spread it throughout the country. His family was a family full of killers from generations going back to slavery all the way down to South Carolina. And the author of the book traced the the... I mean, from uncles, grandfathers, going back generations, they was killers up to him. And um, they wanted to find the origin of this. And what they found was the origin of black people killing black people for even minuscule things. Like back when I was a child, you could step on somebody's new Jordans and you might get shot in the face. Or they might stab you because, you you know, you scuffed their shoes. Um, where that comes from was us imitating white people dueling. Because in South Carolina, it was one of the most infamous dueling states in the country where if somebody says something to your wife and you didn't like how he talked to her or he might have disrespected you in public and called you a sissy or something. And you would be like, look, you know, you, you disrespected my honor. I want to duel." And exactly what we were watching the, the Bugs Bunny cartoons as a child is exactly what would happen. You'd either get a sword, you get a gun, you march 10 paces, turn the fire at each other. Um, other times would be physical combat, ripping body parts off, ripping ears off, ripping somebody's nose off, um, biting their face, all kinds of heinous, crazy things. That's what black people were indulging in. And his family was one of those families. And it just carried over intergenerationally till it got to him. And um, he was so wild in prison. He was known for stabbing guards. He was known for stabbing inmates. And they used to call him the devil because he was just so violent. Um, even the, 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 the COs were afraid to even like even be in his vicinity. So these are the types of things that um that we get in those genes. Those things do come in the genes in ways that we're not always um cognizant of. I know some of my family's history with that, so um 
I know for me, there's certain things that I stay away from because of my temperament. And that's in order to make sure that I don't get involved in anything that, you know, might push me over the edge or make me put myself in a situation that might be detrimental to my own <laughs> survival, freedom, or health. So that's it. So a lot of things we carry in these genes, you just got to know yourself and then you make better decisions for yourself and for others. Go ahead, Jenna. I think you're about to say something. Man, you was just filling in all the gaps, man. Because oh, okay. <laughs> being able yeah. to get that information on if you survive some of the instances that you put yourself in, you know, if you survive those, then we're supposed to pass it along. But a, a lot of times we don't. Like you say, we always angry at our, at ourselves. So, mm-hmm. and anybody that looks like us. Yeah, that's the thing. We've been cultivated to not love what we see in the mirror. And I think that a lot of us um, just don't know how deep this sort of stuff goes as far as our experience and how we've come to adopt these thoughts, mannerisms, and and behavior, speech, and action. Um, And that's why I think when people like, oh, y'all need to, you know, let that go or forget about it, that's the worst thing you could do because it's the cause of all of your idiosyncratic behavior. Everything that we do that's not in concert with something healthy and sensible is because of this system. It's just how it works. And then we, we were not supposed to think. Go ahead. Say we amplified with the uh, with alcohol, mm-hmm. some other drugs of choice, and hopefully we uh mixing those safely for those who do. I remember being young and putting all of that together, but not not no pills or nothing. But you know, drinking and smoking. And making a lot of bad decisions. So, you know, everybody don't get to survive those. So when we do, we have to be able to pass them on. What about some of the issues that uh, those normally cause the altercations, though? So what would you what would you suggest, Rise, for for the people who would like to get that information through? no matter what, because like you just explained, the uh, the young man's lineage had him going. And what if you want to stop that early? To stop that early, I think, because the main thing with, with me was that I didn't want my son to be anything like me in regards to feeling they had to make any decisions similar to the ones that I made when I was young. And the greatest part of that was just being there just every day, them being able to come home, my son being able to come home and interact with his father every day. My son being able to watch me read from young, he'd be watching me read all these books and he'd be like, he'd be looking at my library like dad, all these books are yours. And I'd be like, yes. He'd be like, did you read all of these books? I said the overwhelming majority of them. Yes. He said, um, I want to read all these books just like you. That's one of the first things he said to me. When, when he could actually talk, <laughs> you know, like I remember I'll be reading and he would just lay right next to me and act like he was reading with me. And um, I would just have these little conversations with him. And he let me know that he wanted to be as intelligent as for him, I was the example of. 
And as he got older, he still says that type of stuff. I mean, he's in college now, so uh, his focus is intensely on the medical field that he's in. But we've already discussed that once school is over, real school begins as far as the things that I wish to impart to him that I wasn't able to, because the vast majority of his life he spent in school. He started school at like the age of two. So we've given him a lot, but I couldn't anywhere near provide what I wanted to because of the hours he spent in school and I had to work. So he knows that once he's done with college, there's another curriculum there. And that's pretty much the things I, I need to impart to him before I disappear for good. So that way, what I need to give to him, I can give that to him. And then, like I told him, everything that's in that library is going to be his to build upon. And we're going to have a pretty much a family library that we pass down from generation to generation. And each generation is going to add text and, you know, whatever medium of recording, DVDs, CDs, whatever, <laughs> you know, SD cards, whatever it's going to take to have, inf whatever information we can compile, we're going to continue to add to that as a family. And that's pretty much the plan. So that's, that's one of the, what, one of the ways I would say um, the, the relationship you have with your child cultivate one in which they are not afraid to talk to you. That is the greatest thing is being able to have candid conversations where they are comfortable being able to tell you anything. So there's no reason for them to ever feel they need to hide anything from you, even something that you may, may not be ready to hear as a parent. Because with, with children, those things do come sometimes. You might be hearing something that you aren't ready to hear from them. But if they trust you enough, they're not going to keep that secret from you. And how you react is going to dictate how they're going to deal with, deal with those situations in the future. So if you react in a way that's not conducive to them being comfortable talking to you, understand they're never going to talk to you again. And you'll end up finding out things about them from the streets or from another sibling who might have had to, you know, come into that information themselves because their sibling now doesn't trust anyone due to how mom and or dad reacted to another situation. So these are things that we have to consider. Get to know your children. I don't believe in in uh, uh, putting your hands on children. I grew up getting the heck beat out of me, so that's something I don't believe in. Do I think that it's necessary for some children? Yes, I do. Some children you're not able to talk to, but I think the majority of children, if you know, if you really, really understand that all children are, are little human beings and you treat them as such rather than the hierarchy of just strictly the hierarchy of you being a parent, them being a child, but also understand that they're little people and they're learning how to be people. You should be able to talk to the majority of children and get a response. But it also is based on what you're exposing them to, because you got to remember from zero to seven, children, their brains grow the fastest during that time period, and they learn the most during that time period. And the vast majority of what they learn, because they're still trapped mostly in the spiritual world at that age. So they come in open. They're like sponges. So everything you expose them to from that zero to seven shapes their personality. And a lot of the rest of their life will be predicated on what is programmed into them from zero to seven. So you have to program the best in them and you'll find that they're less of a problem down the road. Most children will be like that. Like I said, some children do, do need the, the, the corporal punishment depending on, on, you know, how they are. Some children are just, they might be an alpha male or alpha female, don't want to hear nothing. 
um, they might have an attraction for certain things. And because they're that alpha type of personality, they go in headlong. So as a parent, you might have a tougher time with them. So they might need corporal punishment. It don't mean that you just be beating the brakes off of them, but it just means sometimes they need that, that physical check. And you have to be able to, to, to even measure that if it's necessary. Oh, it's being measured for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's a lot. And, and again, too, there's a process to de-escalating those situations. Like you don't just like just, you know, spank a child and then you just send them away and leave them to deal with it on their own. You're going to create somebody else that's going to abuse other people. They're going to take out all that abuse you're putting on them in the street. You have to also know how to de-escalate those things afterwards and be able to, to, to make sure that they understand why things got to that point and how to avoid those things ever getting to that point again. Like, these are all things you have to instate as a parent. Like, you can't just, like, like I used to just get the brakes beat off of me, and then it's just go to bed. <laughs> that was it. You know what I mean? And by the time I was able to, like I said before, 12, 13, I was able to discern that, you know, pretty much the, the, the life was rigged really to my complete detriment because I was a young black male. I started, I was a hellraiser. I started taking out all that abuse from, from that beat, them beatings from home. Everybody on the street could get it. And that's just how it was until my early 20s. From like, from like 13 to my early 20s, it was on. And that's just how, how people react if the parenting isn't what it's supposed to be. And you have to really, really just try your best to know your child and also know yourself. Because sometimes you have to know when to ease back too and when to, you know, let that child kind of process certain things and um, maybe come back to a conversation later on and not just, um, you know, overwhelm them with wanting to just, for them, it might be too much and you might need to just, you know, give them a little breather and then come back to it a little later. It even happens in relationships. You're significant other, your partner. You might have a situation that comes up and the emotions are so intense that y'all decide to come back to that conversation later. So it happens in the adult world. Why shouldn't it happen in, in the world of, of your child? They're nothing but little people like you. And with anything, if you put too much pressure on it, on something, it's going to break. Why would a parent want to be the reason for that child breaking? Because that's what they're going to remember you for. Always remember, that's, that's one thing I like to tell people in this world. You can do a million good things for people. They will always forget it. But you make that one error, you will never live it down. And especially in today's day and age, where everything is just about sensationalism. So if you make any error that people can exploit to, to demonize your character or to make you look like someone that you are not, Whatever mistake you made, you will potentially carry that for the rest of your life. And that was something that I learned about the Internet, dealing with mental health. Um, it was one of, my, one of the, the companies I worked for before, and they were a mental health company, and they said the one thing about the Internet is that the mm -hmm. Internet can cause mental illness due to the fact that it never lets you forget. They say the human mind is programmed to forget for a reason because that's sometimes part of the healing process from traumatic events. But if you have your Facebook and there was a traumatic event that played out on Facebook, you're going to get that anniversary notice that's going to pop up. It's been a year since. 
Mm. And it might take you right back to that event and re-traumatize you once a year. You get re-traumatized because Facebook will never let you forget. And in some cases, the people that were involved in that event, because their Facebook is giving them the same reminder, they might not let you forget either. You might get a friendly neighborhood reminder from the same people who traumatized you every single year because you're not allowed to forget and move on. That's an aspect of our humanity that's being lost right there. You have an issue that happens with a family member that might have been upsetting for you, and you might have worked it out with that family member, and once a year, ding, you get a reminder from Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, and it takes you right back to why you hate the heck out of that family member. And before you know it, you know, y'all back on, or the beef is on again. It's cooking. It's simmering because y'all can't get past it because technology won't let you do what humans naturally do over time. Something as simple as forgetting. Bad, Jenna, what you going to say? I'm sorry. Nah, man, you striking so many mem- uh, memories. You know, uh, first, just to go about the children, I know, like you say, we got to realize they're little people. They are, they are little piece. Mm, excuse me. Little pieces. Little pieces of us. So sometimes we don't like the fact that our personality, uh, everything about us is talking that way to us. Sometimes I think that's a, a issue that we kind of overlook sometimes. You know, because most of us don't want to be told what we're telling other people. And like you say, from zero to seven, these little children are sucking in all of you. So when they run to you like you, you know, we shouldn't be uh, like you say, we shouldn't be able to just knock them out like we used to get. But they even taking the they taking away the fact that we can uh, whoop them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, Go ahead. It's a little bit more. I don't know. It, it's it's interesting because um, even if you're a person who doesn't like, okay, I break it down like this: when. At one point, Malcolm and Martin were beefing with each other. Like, Malcolm would literally go to bat against King and all the people surrounding him because he felt that the nonviolent stuff was just some real um, uh, nonsense in his mind. Yeah, like, he just felt like it was a complete waste of time. So he would go at him in interviews and, you know, sometimes in debates when when the nonviolent approach would come up, he would just annihilate them. And eventually, he ended up... um, And Betty and and Coretta were friends. A lot of people didn't know that. They were actually friends. And eventually he was able to come around and and, uh, pretty much he started to make uh, amends with with Martin. And that's that famous photo of them together laughing and and I believe shaking hands in the photograph. And um, he said, at one point, he pretty much said to Coretta, he said, um, after, you know, he apologized for all of the stuff that happened in the past and he was willing to move forward. And, you know, you know, as long as Martin didn't say nothing about him, he would say nothing about Martin or anybody else for that matter. And um, he pretty much, he started doing what Nilly Fuller talked about, not name calling, not bad mouthing other black people, especially in public. 
something that all of us can <laughs> should really, you know, think about. That's a major part of why we can't get along with each other. But anyway, he said the only reason Martin was able to make a lot of the moves that we now revere him for is because I chose to play the alternative. If there was no violent alternative, then white people would not have given two hecks about the peaceful way. And it's really true. Because if you study Gandhi's life, as nonviolent as he was, a lot of people didn't know he had a lot of guns and a lot of people who were willing to get busy to make sure the British got the heck up out of India. So if the nonviolent stuff didn't work, he had an alternative. A lot of people don't know that about Gandhi. Gandhi had an alternative. He was also a soldier, so he knew what it is. He knew what it is. He just didn't like black people either. He was just as hateful towards black people as the white people were. But he had an alternative if, if the nonviolent stuff didn't work. Malcolm was the, the, the alternative. So for black people who don't believe in corporal punishment for their children, you still may not have to put your hands on them to get a response. It's just the thought that that could happen for some children would be just enough motivation to keep them in line. But in today's day and age where that's not an option because these children are given, given, in my opinion, way too many rights in the sense that now parents can't even be parents in the basic sense. You know, I know in Canada, they had a whole thing where if a child believes that they're a girl who thinks they're a boy and you don't call them by the proper gender, uh, gender classification, that child can be removed from your house. And they'll cite child abuse because you did not choose to call them what they wish to be called that day. So parents' rights have eroded completely. And that's pretty much coming to the United States. It's all around the United States now with the push of the LGBT, you know, WXYZP pedophile thing that they're doing. So it's really um, something to, to kind of think about. It's really just trying to to get to know your child. And if they're like you, always remember that the more that they're like you, the greater chance you're not going to get along with them. Me and my father didn't get along because we were very similar. Me and my mother didn't get along because we were very similar. And that was, that surrounded all of us having horrific tempers. My mother had a bad temper. I had, my father had a horrible temper and I had a combination of both of their horrible tempers. My father was the more physical one. My mother was the, the, the physical one when it came to me because my sister didn't really get her behind spank like that, but I stayed getting licked up. So, the, but she naturally, she, she was more of a talker. Um, but when it came to me, she was physical. Um, with my dad, he was physical. It didn't take long for him to you know, want to reach out and just straight touch up somebody. So I got all of that from them. And then because the family life was bad, I took that with me into public, into the public space. And got into a lot of trouble. So it's just um, something to always remember. If you're like, if you are, you and your child are very similar in certain ways. Understand that things you don't like in them is exactly what you don't like about yourself. If you really sit and analyze it, a lot of the things you don't like about that child that's just like you is exactly the things that have gotten you in trouble your whole life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ways that they might have, they might be acting towards you, or they might speak to you in ways that you feel might be disrespectful. If you go back over your life, you'll realize you did the same thing to your parents because they're you. They're pretty much a genetic copy of you and all of your ancestors that came before you. That's the facts. 
And we don't think about that. We think about them, you know, in in a different way. And we think about them almost like we own them. It's like that slavery mentality even applies to the parent-child relationship for some of our people. So we act like we own them. We're their custodians. We're their spiritual custodians. That's what parents are. They come, their ancestors who return to have a human experience through the loins of one of their own progeny. And when I say that, I mean, at least in, you know, in the, the spiritual practice I practice and in quite a few other African cultures, you know, they, they, they pretty much believe that children are, are ancestors return that come back to the same family that they, that they genetically come from. So someone who, who might be a grandparent in one life could be a sibling in another life and, and things of that nature, for an example. So the idea is that you're their custodian. You're supposed to show them the ropes on how to live in the, the world that they're born into, how to get the most out of that and survive at their optimum. That's what, in my opinion, a culture is. And you allow them to express themselves to their fullest genetic potential. Do your best as a parent to allow them that ability to do so. And they can change the world. Some of them. That's going to be the but only way we're going to get it. PK said it. Give them the game. It's like, we don't play the long game. We play, we just think about next week. We think about tomorrow. We think about the next paycheck. You know, white folks, they think intergenerationally. How can my great, 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 great grandchild continue to dominate these Negroes? And who did they get that from? Us. When you go back to our ancient cultures, we we used to pass on instructions to to other to our descendants. Yeah, not dead. We would pass on instructions on things that needed to be done to maintain the spiritual balance, which should also play out into balance in society and in the physical. And we would pass on these instructions from generation to generation. You can go to the Nile and see it all over. I went there and I saw it myself. When you look at the different temples, they were considered living structures of stones. You can read about some of that stuff um, if you get into an author named Isha Shwala Delubit. He spent like 23 years in, um, in uh, Karnak Temple. He lived in the temple, and he documented every hieroglyph, every pylon, every symbol, and he was able to tap into a lot of the secrets. He's one of the few white people who actually was able to discern <laughs> a great deal of sacred knowledge that our ancestors had in that temple just by studying it. And his books are phenomenal. Some of them can be very expensive, but they're worth it. If you want to really, really get into the deep, deep wisdom and esoteric um, and, and incredible knowledge, vast knowledge that our ancestors possessed, Isha Shwala Delubis and his wife, um, his wife is on, um, Isha, his wife is Isha Shwala Delubitz. Her husband is R.A. Shwala Delubitz. And together they've written a myriad of texts on um, Nile Valley culture and, and, and education and spirituality based on their personal experience from him, R.A., living in that temple for 23 years and just documenting everything, literally. And um, he, he, had, he has quite a bit of incredible information to to pass on, but those temples were living structures. Each pharaoh would leave instructions for the next pharaoh to actually build on the temple. So they were considered living structures because with each generation, the temple was never the same. There would always be a new wing built on. So Amenhotep III had a wing. 
at Luxor Temple. King Tut had a wing at the temple, and so on and so forth. You'll see that subsequent pharaohs would just build on and build on and build on. And if they were able to continue that tradition before um, our our culture was interrupted by invaders, then all of those temples would be much bigger than they are now. You got to remember Luxor Karnak, those are some of the oldest universities, probably the oldest documented universities on the planet. And they used to hold up to 80,000 students at a time from all over the world. And you had sub subordinate lodges all over the country, all over the world, in Europe, in the, in the, in the, in the Western hemisphere, in the far East, you had subordinate lodges. That's how uh, Africans pretty much dominated the world was by controlling information and, and knowledge, not by uh, military conquest. They did have military conquest, but they, they, they controlled knowledge. And, and, and you had to go through a, a specific system in order to access that knowledge and you had to be worthy of it. You got to remember, like uh, Jen and I just talked about this, uh, it might have been yesterday or the day before, the fact that the term pseudo is a Greek term. And the Greeks used to use the term pseudo whenever they encountered some aspect of the Nile Valley educational system that they couldn't comprehend, they would automatically call it pseudo. And a lot of the things that they call pseudo are things that modern Europeans are confirming now that our ancestors knew for thousands upon umpteen thousands of years. So even when you're using the term pseudo, you're using another white term to downplay another black person. Even if it's accurate, if you're saying that this information is false, but that term pseudo to me falls in the same realm as coon. It's name calling, because that's a Greek term. And it was a term that was used when Greeks could not understand something that they were being taught in the educational system in Kemet. And all of their great so-called philosophers and leaders all learned in Kemet, from Solon to Pythagoras, um, every one of them have been there. Socrates, all of them were taught there. And like KRS said in the song we played last week, they didn't have respect for philosophers. They killed them because they believed that those philosophers were infusing Greek society with foreign concepts, African concepts. So they didn't want them spreading this African propaganda amongst those white people. But those, that same so-called propaganda was the information that helped to elevate Greek society. That's where the Greeks got all their gods from. Their whole entire deity system came from Kemet. You had an oracle called the Oracle of Delphi, where they had what we call the two black doves that were held in that temple. And they were actually two Egyptian women that they kidnapped. They were virgins. And sometimes they would get them high. And then they would ask them questions, and these women would predict the future with stunning accuracy. They were known as the Oracle of Delphi in Greece. Now, a lot of people don't know this stuff. But go ahead. No, they don't. Uh, you always give me a good starting point, and it takes me so many places. But I know you also wanted to uh, discuss this uh, Flame Monroe piece on the Breakfast Club. So Yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> the thing about the Flame Monroe piece is this. This is a transgender guy who likes butch females. And he likes, like he said, four hours a day, he's transgender. The rest of the day, he's a man. So that should tell you the mental illness that is transgenderism. <laughs> Which we had another video we didn't play tonight 
where one guy goes the the one about the 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 fem, feminist activist that uh that didn't believe what was it called a feminist activist that didn't believe that transgender was something you remember it Jenna let me go see if I could look at look at the where's it at somebody was saying they uh they wasn't real women they weren't real women exactly. And this guy's pretty much saying for four day, four hours out of every day, he's a transgender. And other than that, he's a man. And even when he's a transgender, he's still a man. And he's talking about the fact that transgender LGBTQ are literally destroying the feminine model. I got this term from Robert X. <laughs> Fake feminine. That's what it is. They've created an entire genre of this created fake lifestyle that's called female imposters. Like he said, we're impersonating a female. I'm not a real female. I'm impersonating one. Where did I learn to be a female from? Other women in my family, my mom, my aunts, my sister, my, you know, other females. I just happen to like females who think they're males. And underneath this dress, I have the tools to get the, the deed done. That's what he said. Yeah, that's exactly what. So what? So what? What does that sound like? If I go to someone and say, because basically he's saying I'm straight. I just like women who think they men, and I like to dress up like a female. The mental illness in that visual picture is just so evident. There's there's nothing left to be said. But I must say, in regards to that, but I must say his candor about the fact that there is a high level of toxicity and psychological warfare being performed on the public by that specific group of people. And the way that he elucidates that and the way that he just knocks down the whole Malik Yoba argument about the nonsense that he was spewing, which I thought was ridiculous from day one. I just thought it was great to have someone from that community who could actually speak the same language that the people like us, like, like normal heterosexual people, have been speaking in regards to the way that that group is operating. And they're trying to force our children into this and they're trying to force the entire society to kowtow to, like he said, 0.4% of the society, 0.4%. But if you look at the way that they, they, the kind of power that they wield, you would think they made up 90% of the population. They're extremely powerful. They've become as powerful in 40 years as we have not been able to do anything for 500 about our condition. Put those side by side. We've been fighting for 500 years and have not been able to make any real headway. And in 40 years, they've been able to get the respect that the only other group that I've seen be able to amass that kind of respect are, are Jews. But you just can't say nothing about them. They're a protected class. If you say anything, you might lose your entire livelihood. <laughs> and we, 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 you know, like the, the white guy said in the clip we played last week, when he went to the radio and said, I got, a, I got hundreds of songs about black people killing black people. And like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it depends on who it's made by and who it's, who it's um, to be sold to. As long as it's us, we don't matter. As long as we don't cross any lines that offend the dominant group, white supremacy, then, you know, Rick Ross could keep doing what he's doing. But as soon as he talked about date rape, he lost sponsorship, you know, because he offended Massa. 
Real talk. So it's it's serious business with that. Man, but um, I just go ahead. That's a good that's a good transition spot, man. Because we're getting short on time. Okay. These children are acting up. I'm finna have to go okay. get that myself. Okay. But okay. Okay. TK, uh, the TK Kirkland. Mm-hmm. Everything tonight falls into that category. We got to keep on building on, like you were saying, with the children. Absolutely. Sometimes you don't. You know, we also have to. Uh, sometimes you don't get the. Uh, you don't get that time. Right. Whether you know for whatever decisions, man or woman, done made. So say that some of that time done passed. What would be the best? What What would be your best advice to uh to even though y'all may have an issue to pass that information along? Man, I think because everybody's situation and circumstance is really different and unique. Just to, think. Just ahead, think of just, the word. Just think of what the word incident without uh what could be the worst scenario without uh let's pick cousins or mm-hmm. or auntie what have you you mm-hmm. have some information that is like very relevant for them yeah but y'all have a speaking relationship how would you transfer that information to them um sometimes you might have to do it third party do somebody that you do communicate with who also communicates with them. Like, um, I'll give you an example. Like, I don't, I don't deal with my mom at all. I have no contact with her. I haven't for a very, very long time, but my son is in contact with my mom. Um, so sometimes I will give him certain bits of information. If he tells me she's dealing with certain things in order for him to pass them on to her. Now, the thing about it is, even though I don't deal with any of my closest relatives at all, and it's just for that reason, minimize contact to minimize conflict, I was also the catalyst to bring a lot to my family. So in other words, um, when I was in the family, I'm able to get my mother to do a lot of things that she wouldn't do because she knows how intelligent I am and she trusts what I say. So if I was to tell her certain things to help her health-wise, she is way more apt to take that advice and try it if it's coming from me and her and I on speaking terms than she would take it from my son just because of the relationship that I have with, with her. Um, and when I say that, I mean, like, even when I was in her life, she straight up, like, left Christianity behind. She started going to an Orisha church, an Orisha house in Brooklyn, and started connecting with uh, uh, this, this particular um spiritual house of the Ifa tradition of the Yoruba people. And I think she still goes off and on, but she pretty much um, really like slowed down with it severely after her and I stopped speaking. Um, but when I'm there, she, she, she knows what I'm about. <laughs> and I don't really, I don't really mess with that. So I literally changed my family when I'm involved. Like people know that I'm about that for real. So when I come into the picture, they know that I'm not going to stand for certain things. And I'm going to just speak about certain things quite openly and I'm the one who can get my mom to really, okay, you know, my son said X, Y, Z. And, you know, he's like, this is helpful. I know that he's helped me before with certain things as far as different ailments I had. I'm going to take his advice. She, she's not like that with my son. So I, I might try to pass certain information through him to her. But whether she takes that 
information and does something with it is neither here nor there. It might never happen. But if I was around, it would have happened. So these are the types of things that I try to do is just a third party way. Um, if that if that's something that is um, that can available. happen, I th- yeah, available to me, then I'll, or to the other person, whoever whoever's within earshot, I would take that approach. If you deal with someone that they deal with, and you just have them present that information to the person as if it's coming from them, as if it's not coming from you. So that way, the the wisdom you're trying to convey to them, they can get it in the way in which they receive it because it's not necessarily coming from you. But that also comes with being selfless. A lot of us want to be always be able to take the credit. I'm the one who told them da 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 da. I'm the one who you know without me they wouldn't. Nah, it's about look. They need that information. I have it to provide. Let me pass it along, even if I don't necessarily get along with that person. I still want the best for them. This is a part of me helping them, you know, do what they need to do for themselves, even though they think I may not like them because I don't communicate with them. I love them, but I know that me having a direct relationship with them is detrimental to both of us. So this is the approach I have to take in order to pass this this gift on to them. And hopefully it'll reach them and hopefully it'll help them. So I would say that's probably one of the, the ways I would do it. Um, there's probably other ways, too. I don't know if anybody else would think of some ingenious ways, but I think that that's one of the best ways to do it. Um I could be incorrect, of course. I, you know, I don't. I don't think I know everything, but that's just my that's just my own suggestion. Now, um, I did also want to touch on that video about the kidnapper ants, because I think it's it's very telling about the world and the system that we live in. So it's about these 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 black ants that have their own colony and they do their thing, and you have these ants that are known as kidnapper ants who pretty much kidnap the larvae or the babies of the black ants and they enslave them. So how they enslave them is they kidnap them as pupa. So they're pretty much um, would be considered a baby in the womb. That's when they kidnap them. Um, And then they grow them. Once they grow them, they grow them into thinking that they are also kidnapper ants. So there it is. They're they're projecting who they are onto the babies of the species that they've kidnapped. Then what they do also is, if you remember in the video, they said that the kidnapper ants are so designed for kidnapping these babies yeah, that they, they cannot chew. They can't even chew their own food. So they actually coerce the babies that they kidnapped into chewing the food and spitting it into their mouths as a soup, which is how they get their sustenance. On top of that, they lay around. And the, the, the kidnapped ants do everything. They clean the, they clean the, 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 um, the ant dwelling. They, they're the ones who clean it. They're the ones who do all the maintenance. They're the ones who go out and eat the food and come back, and then they coax the food out of them. And, and the, the kidnapper ants just pretty much lays around and chill until it's time to kidnap some more babies. That sounds like white supremacy. Because if you look at it, everything that white people that we see them do today, they have stolen from us. Everything. There's not a thing that they do, even if you read uh, Count, Count Volney, his book is called Ruin of Empire, and he, and he actually says the same, the same Negroes that we hold in bondage, that we treat as slaves and, and treat as subhuman, are the very people with which we owe everything that we, that we are, including our use of speech, which is true. White people used to grunt. They didn't speak until we taught them to speak. They didn't know what wiping their backside was after they used the toilet till we created a toilet for them. 
We created air-conditioned cooling systems in Granada, Spain. We created the first universities, the University of Salamanca, the University of Andalusia, and all these other places when, uh, when the Moors ruled, ruled uh, Spain for almost 800 years. So everything that, that they are, that we think is so advanced and so special, they got from us. And when, when the Moors ruled Europe, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all lived alongside each other peacefully. Nobody was fought, bombing nobody else. Nobody was running up and killing and gunning each other down. Everybody was peaceful with each other. And when the Moors came, they did not destroy the infrastructure. They did not destroy the records. They didn't burn any libraries. They came to add on to what was there and fill in the gaps of what white people didn't know, which was how to basically take care of themselves and have a clean society. Before the Moors came there, they used, to, they used to have what's known as a chamber pot. A chamber pot is pretty much a little bowl, ceramic bowl, that you would uh, urinate and defecate in. And white people would toss the defecation and urine out the window. So you could be walking down the street. That was one of the reasons for the use of the umbrella in Europe, was to prevent getting feces splattered on you because people would empty their chamber pots out the window. If you study the history of Europe, you'll find that high heels were first worn by men, not women. And the reason why was because there was such sludge in the street, because they would have the butchers would put the animal guts in the street. You had people tossing feces and urine out the window. So there was literally six inches worth of filth and, and toxic sludge on the streets of, of, of London. And in order to avoid stepping in those feces, you had the high heel shoes. It wasn't until late in Britain's history that high heel shoes became in vogue for women and no longer were worn by men. Prior to that, it was men who wore them. And they were red bottoms. Yes, they wore red bottoms. <laughs> Look it up. It's going to blow your mind, folks. So when you look at those kidnapper ants, they couldn't do anything for themselves. And what did they do? They had to indoctrinate the children because what? The children were born into enslavement. They didn't know any better. They automatically assumed that they were kidnapper ants too and that their role was to feed the other kidnapper ants. Just like our children grow up thinking our role is to kowtow to white supremacy because they're born into it. We were all born into it. So you have to unlearn what you were born into. That's the reason for disconnecting the parents from the children because the parents can teach the children how things used to be before they were before they were prisoners of war. That's the reason for forget Africa. Don't tell them nothing about that. Remember Ed Robinson when he talked about how his grandmother was kidnapped from the Songhai Empire, and they had a, 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 a an educator, a European educator who was telling the slave the, the um, slave masters in America how to to stop the rebellions of the slaves here that they brought from Africa, and they told them. For example, if a mother comes here pregnant, as soon as she gives birth, you sell the baby to the other side of the country and you work her to death. That way the ancestral memory is dead. And once you get the child to the other part of the country, you can raise them to think whatever they want about themselves, that they're nothing. Rebellion over. Your ancestors love slavery. We're the ones who took you from Africa. And if it wasn't for us kidnapping you and enslaving you, mm-hmm. y'all would still be in that savage land. That's the stuff that they used to tell our people, and they would tell our children that. So now you have people today who, I ain't African. <laughs> when all the science, like we heard earlier tonight from the geneticist, the sister who's a geneticist, if you're not African, you're not human. So anybody who tells me they're not African, but they're whatever they call themselves, 
going to be like, well, you got to prove to me you're human then because you can't be human and, and call yourself a human being and, and not be an African because all humans came from Africa. Man. I don't <laughs> indulge crazy. I don't do crazy whatsoever. So when the people come with that nonsense, the conversation ends very quickly with me. I don't have time to even waste my time indulging that stupidity. But that's, that's how bad we've been indoctrinated into hating ourselves. That we, the kidnapper ants. Well, I think we are the lava. Good one. Go ahead. I think that's a good way to end it out with the, uh, give us your explanation on that crow. The crow. The raven. Yes, I wanted to get into that. I was going to say, please, let's do that before we, we, we close out. Now, with the raven, right? The raven thought that the swan, the white bird, was the happiest, most content, and beautiful bird in the world. When he went to the swan, the swan said, I thought I was the happiest and most beautiful bird in the world until I came across the parrot. The parrot has two colors. So he flew around till he found the parrot. And the parrot then tells the raven, I thought I was the most content, happy, and beautiful bird in the world until I encountered a peacock. The peacock has many colors. And then he flies around, unable to find a peacock because they're not indigenous to America. And he finds one in a zoo. And when he gets to the peacock, he said, I always thought that I was the most beautiful and happiest and most content bird in the world. But I'm in this cage because of my beauty. So now I really think that you, the raven, who nobody pays attention to, is the most happy and content bird in the world. I wish I was like you. Now I'm going to break down this story for you in a counter-racist manner. The raven is white people. The peacock are African people globally. Why do I say that? Because the peacock is made of many colors. Black, the color black, our color, is made up of all the other colors on the spectrum. To make the color black, you have to combine all the other colors. So we're the prettiest. We're the most beautiful. We're the most intelligent. We're the most ancient. We're the first. So we're in cages because of who and what we are. That cage is white supremacy. And that hierarchy of the, 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 the parrot and the swan is the hierarchy of white supremacy. If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're yellow, you're mellow. And if you're black, get back. And the raven is actually the most intelligent bird on the planet. A lot of people don't know that. That bird has the intelligence of a six-year-old human child. They remember things. They literally talk to each other. A lot of people don't know this about ravens. They're the most intelligent bird on the planet. And that they, are, they represent white people because white people have indoctrinated everyone else to accept them, the abnormal, as normal. So the raven is so bland and so normal that nobody wants to encage them. But the most beautiful, the one that has all the colors, essentially the black one, is the one that's in the cage. And he wishes he was the raven. In other words, he wishes he was considered normal, like the raven was considered normal. Because if he was the raven, he would be free. He wouldn't be caged because of his beauty. The most beautiful woman in the world is an African woman, no matter where you find her. 
she suffers more than anybody else when it comes to women. The most... The most... um, powerful masculine force on the planet is the African male, no matter where he's found. He can make, and she can make every other color on the planet, and they're hated for that. We are the peacock. They are the raven. Free the bird to fly wherever they want, while everybody else, color hierarchy, has some form of suffering to go through because parrots get put in cages too. Swans don't tend to. Sometimes they do, but for the most part, you find them in the wild. So that, to me, is the story of the raven. The significance is when you look at the psychology of the story and how this raven is going through this experience of trying to figure out who's the most beautiful, who's the, most, who's the happiest, who's the most content bird. It turned out it was him. The difference is white people ain't interested in finding out because they know that they, they're, the, they're, the, they're, the, they're the, at the top of the line. That's why it's called white supremacy. Only one group could be supreme, and they know who they are in the hierarchy they created. So I think that's the, the big significance of the story of the raven. And when you look at the intelligence of the raven, just the way that it's asking questions, that's how white people dominated everybody else, asking them questions, learning everything they could about them, studying them down to a science, and they're formulating a psychology around dominating them in every one of the 11 areas of people activity, economics, education, entertainment, healthcare, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, war, and technology. They learn that by asking questions. And it's not that they're smarter than everyone else, white people, that is, because we just talked about the fact that genetically black people are the, the, have the highest predisposition for intelligence of any human group on the planet, genetically, scientifically. But they are shrewd, they're cunning, and they're willing to do anything to survive genetically. And that's the difference between them and us. And until we start learning that, and coming up with ways of counteracting that, like I always say, coalesce around solving our problems as a collective group. They're going to continue to have us in positions where we're continue to be terrorized. So if we, like T.K. Kirkland said, everything that we need to do starts with the family, and it starts with not thinking about us, but thinking into the future. That's the major difference between human beings and every other species of animal on the planet is that we see into the future. We can envision ourselves doing things in the future, a time that doesn't currently exist. That's a major attribute of being human is being able to look into the future and kind of predict certain events of how you want your life to go and then you work towards that happening. And even though people always say that time is a a human construct, it is to a degree. But in reality, it also isn't. So it's a little bit of both. The reason why is because when you really start to study time, time is not a solo invention. 
And anyone who tells you that is lying to you. Time is intimately intertwined with memory. Always remember that. It is intimately tied with memory. Because when you say to your family member, your friend, remember that time when they have to go into their memory and remember that place in time and space and the events that took place in that time and space in order for that event to be relevant at all. So without memory, time is insignificant. And without time, memory is insignificant. They are equal opposites on the spectrum of measurement of life cycles on this planet. What is archaeology, anthropology? Remembering time, human existence in time and space and documenting that to the best of your ability. What is the, the measurement of the acquisition of knowledge? Gaining viable information over a span of time and making it a collective part of your wisdom as an organism. So as you function, you learn the things that are optimal to your survival and those things you pass on to your offspring if you're smart. If you're not smart, you let them fend for themselves and make the same dumb mistakes you make. And maybe they might not make, out of, make their way out of those mistakes. Like I always say, some mistakes are one shot, one kill. You don't get a second chance. That one mistake is your fatal and final mistake. So if you really are trying to help your children, you give them as much wisdom as possible to avoid the pitfalls that you do because the luck that you might have had to escape and survive those situations, your offspring may not. So why not help them not even get in that situation to even have to worry about what are the odds of them making it out of the situation that I did not prepare them for, even though I had the knowledge to actually give them the information to prepare them for it, but I chose not to. Time is nothing without memory, and memory means absolutely nothing without time. That is another reason why time is your most precious commodity. Because whatever you put your time towards, the same way what you eat becomes you, the things you put your time towards also becomes you. If, if you're dedicating your time towards nothing, you're going to get nothing in return. If you dedicate your time towards something, you will get a result of some type. And always remember that success is intimately predicated on failure. You can't succeed at something unless you're good at failing at it first. So don't ever allow yourself to abuse yourself by speaking abusively to yourself about the fact that things may not be going your way. It's because you have to learn the right way of doing things by doing things the wrong way first. That is one of the major points and processes in, of learning itself. So don't be self-abusive. Be encouraging. And keep focusing on what it is that you want to happen, not what you don't want to happen. Because if you focus on what you don't want to happen, then the universe and the creator is going to mirror that back to you every time. Most people who have negative things happen to them a lot are usually people who tend to focus on the things they don't want. This situation doesn't piss me off. I'm mad for half a day about that situation. That just creates more negative energy to fuel the next, next negative thing of the same nature that's going to happen to you because that's all you're focusing your time and energy on. But if you focus on what you do want, 
The things you don't want happens, but you're able to ignore those negative emotions and say, you know what, let me cast that aside. You know, even you might even indulge it for a little while just because it's shocking to you. Like, dang, I can't believe this happened again. Okay, now that you that's settled on you, cast that aside and say, okay, I know what I want. Let me focus on what I want. And eventually the circumstances and the events and the people that you need to help facilitate things happening how you want will happen. Remember that the creator doesn't, doesn't always work through so-called magical means. A lot of the times the help you get comes from other gods, other people. <laughs> other people. The creator created the phenomenal plane in order to experience itself as the creator. And the highest expression of that living form of itself is human beings. So the help that we tend to get to help us get to where we want to be or where we project ourselves into the future, into the universe, this is what I want, is going to be other human beings because, again, we're social creatures. So eventually your relationship to another human being is going to be an integral part of what will eventually be success for you. Because you can't be who you are without having someone else like you to compare yourself to. The only way Mike Tyson could say I'm the best fighter in the world is if there were other fighters that were not the best to compare himself to by, by him beating the brakes off of them. If those other fighters didn't exist, then he could beat his chest till the cows come home and say he's the best, and people would just laugh at him like, okay, well, you're the only boxer. So, okay, you're the best because you're the only one. Nobody's tested your so-called skills. The same thing with, with, with us and whatever we do. We can't be the best unless there's others to compare ourselves to. The same way in the Bible, God can't say it's the only God unless there's other gods to compare itself to. So just the whole idea of there being one God is a fallacy in and of itself in the sense that how can you be the one unless there's others to compare yourself to in order for you to be number one? This is basic common sense. So I just figured that, that that was definitely something I wanted to chime in on in regards to that that Raven story because I thought it was very, very um, uh, conducive to tonight's conversation, really going in the proper direction and just help. Hopefully it was able to bring some deeper understanding to folks. Um, and I don't know, you had anything you wanted to say about it? Oh, the Raven video. Yes. Did what I say about it make sense? Make sense to you? Well, it was it was personal for me, but yes, what you said made perfect sense. Thanks, man. Because I just I, I I always even when I write my essays, I sometimes will go to animal symbolism because these are the things that our ancestors used to do in order to convey certain deep messages, you, you use nature. Um, you know, like I said, there were different forms of education in, across Africa and, and specifically in the Nile. You know, you have your, your classroom setting where you're taking notes and, you, you know, teachers pontificating to you about the subjects at hand and you're taking notes and there might be a blackboard where they're expressing certain concepts to you there. And then you will go out into nature and the things you learned in class, they will show you that experientially in nature. So the, so 
let's say if you're learning about certain sciences and Fibonacci series and stuff, they'll take you out in nature and show you how Fibonacci series develop in nature, whether it's a nautilus shell or uh, a tree, the way that the, the branches grow out of a tree, the petals grow out of a flower. These are all things that have that Fibonacci series, which is the natural progression of um, fractals. And nature, all you see is fractals. Africans mirror fractals in their buildings, how they construct their cities and their, and their, um, and their towns on a traditional indigenous level. They're all fractals. And that is the basis for algorithms and computers today. There was actually a, a video I posted on that on uh, Black Junction relating to that very topic. So you go, you know, you learn in the class setting, they take you out into nature and they show you concepts in nature that mirror what you learned in school. And then one of the other ways they taught you was through initiation, what they call pouring knowledge into people. When you're going through the initiatic process into the tradition of a particular deity, all of that wisdom and knowledge surrounding that deity's um, abilities, what parts of nature that, that that deity represented is poured into your head. So there's certain abilities that you have, <coughs> excuse me, that you have provided through the power of that deity and the intimate connection you have with it. So um, in other words, like when we talked about that story in that book, The Santeria Experience, where the, the um, author was talking about being saved by organized lightning strikes in the middle of a hurricane. She was in the dark and she called out to the deity that was in charge of lightning, Shango. And he was able to save her and her companion's life by flashing lightning in an organized form that she was able to follow to get help to save her friend. That's documented her own personal experience, one of many similar experiences. Or, uh, you know, um, if you go to certain traditional African festivals or ceremonies, you'll find that if someone's possessed, they become possessed by, uh, let's say, Ogun, who is a deity that's in charge of iron and technology and civilization. His main symbol is a machete. And you might see a person possessed that might try to chop at their arm with that with a sharp machete and nothing happens to them. Or if a person is possessed by Shango, a person will take hot coals and put them in their mouth and chew it and they don't get burnt and they swallow it and they don't get hurt. They don't get burnt. None of that. Because those abilities are extensions of the abilities of that particular deity and they express it in that way. So these are things that these are aspects of education. <laughs> Some is spiritual and cosmic. Others are scientific. And um, like I said, you have the, the book knowledge, which is learning in the class. You have experiential knowledge where you go out and you experience phenomena in nature. And then you have pouring knowledge into a person, which is the aspect of going through an initiatic process. And you're gaining wisdom instantaneously through opening certain channels by the, the aspect of going through this ritual of being initiated. And these are just, just some of those, but those are three of the main ways, I would say. But, um, yeah, these are all things that we've, a lot of us have come out of touch with, but a lot of us are now moving back to and, and becoming more connected to in a very intimate way. And like they, they've been saying over the last 10, 15 years, there's record numbers of American Africans leaving Christianity to go to African traditional religions in order to regain those parts of themselves that were lost during the transatlantic slave trade. And some of those things I just described to you are the things that they're able to reclaim um, 
just some, a, a very basic few <laughs> of the things that they can reclaim that were lost to their ancestors via the, the, the enslavement experience in the Western Hemisphere. So was there anything else you wanted to say or chime in with, Jenna? Man, to be honest, I'm running back and forth at these children right now. Uh-oh, so, okay. <laughs> okay. Getting hit us with the prayer, and I'm going to go deal with them real quick. Okay, no problem. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for spending your Tuesday evening with us. I hope that um, you're able to get something constructive from tonight's discussion. I hope that you go into your holiday season. I, I don't really celebrate these holidays. I just look at it more or less as time that I can spend with my family um, uninhibited and just be able to, to um, the, the family that I can be around without having conflict, I'll put it like that, um, be able to spend that quality time and, and uh, just make the moments that last, especially for those relatives that may be sick and you don't know, you know, you just don't know how long you might have with them. So you, you take that time and you spend that time and you make it count for something. But, um, you know, we hope that you're able to get some constructive information, especially for those who might be going into situations that are um, not too uh, palatable for them. And you're not sure of how those situations will go. I would say measure your time, go there, you know, with a specific time saying I'm going to stay for an hour. At the end of that hour, thank you very much. I love y'all. Peace. <laughs> and that way you don't allow yourself to stay long enough for things to turn negative. I would say if you are a person who indulges in, in you know, any mind-altering substances, um, before you go to those events, do not do so. Because so a lot of those substances will create um, a problem with impulse control. So especially if you're drinking liquor and stuff, that, that creates an impulse control issue. You know, somebody says something left to you and you've been, you had enough drinks and you, you're liable to react in ways that might get you in trouble. So if, if you know that that's the potential, don't drink at all. Just go and enjoy yourself and wait till you get home. You know, stay for that hour. Once you leave, you get home, you're back indoors in your house in, in a safe environment, then you can indulge and you by yourself. So that way you don't have to worry about interacting with anyone else that, you know, in a way, way that could potentially be negative for you. Um, hopefully you have a positive experience. You're able to uh, just, like I said, enjoy your relatives, those that you can be around and have a good time. And, and, and from there, move on and not get into anything negative. Um, so hopefully... Again, you have a safe one. Stay out of the hands of them slave catchers. Do everything you can to avoid, matter of fact, minimize contact to minimize conflict with race soldiers. And when I say race soldiers, that goes from law enforcement down to the average white person that you might come across in the street. Um, you know, do what you need to do to maintain uh, minimizing conflict with them as, and especially minimizing contact with other black people in whatever capacity you come in contact with them. So thanks for spending your Tuesday evening with us. Uh, we're about to say the prayer now and get ready to close out the show, and, and hopefully you'll be able to uh, get things, some things of constructive value from tonight's program. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other Black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of Black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time that we are in contact with another Black person. It has been time. Let's replace white supremacy with justice ASAP. And let's also end the prison industrial complex as well as human trafficking. I am in the love of the all and all love is in me. I am a part of the all and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. 
I can be all that I wish in the all as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is. I am. The all can. I can. The all does. I do. Once again, thank you for spending your Tuesday evening with us. I pray that you all stay safe and, and get to spend some quality time with family. And hopefully um, it'll all go well. And we'll see you again next week, Tuesday, Creator Willing, same time, same place. We really, really appreciate each and every one of you that take the time to listen to us and give us your time and your energy. Again, hopefully you've gotten something of constructive value out of tonight's program. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Peace and one love to each and every one of you, those who are listening live now and those who will listen to the podcast at some future date. Uhuru and Ubuntu to each and every one of you. One love. Peace. One love. Peace. Man to man is so unjust. Children, yeah, don't know who to trust. Your worst enemy could be your best friend. And your best friend, your worst enemy. Some will eat and drink with you. Then behind them, sus upon you. Only your friends know your secrets. So only he could reveal it. And who the cabinet? Let them wear it. Who the